Well, one of the hallmarks of our justice system is the tenet that people are believed to be innocent until proven guilty. Unfortunately, it seems more common today that what well, seems more common for people to be guilty until proven innocent. Even more so, it seems to be pretty common today for even the uh, guilty, or, or for those to be guilty despite having been proven innocent. Um, and there, there have been occasions, too, as well, where people are, or um, have been proven innocent despite, or are innocent despite having been proven guilty, right? It's, it's a mess. It's a mess. And that seems to be due to, due to the rule of law and the discovery of truth. Um, those things have taken a back seat to winning, um, to uh, maintaining control, and to exercising power. Right? Those, are, those are all more important. So, and, and social media has just exacerbated the problem. Right? Because that's the avenue through which um, people are tried uh, in the court of public opinion. And when people are tried in the court of public opinion, uh, there seems to be this disregard and even disdain for the truth. And that means that evidence uh, isn't weighed uh, on its own merit, evidence isn't uh, way, uh, isn't weighed apart from intervening forces as it's supposed to, uh, supposed to be, and in the process, facts and um, impartiality and fairness are all considered to be irrelevant. And of course, public opinion exerts such a great deal of influence on those within the system that Lady Justice um, is left without a blindfold and holding only a sword. Blind justice has become more of an exception than it is a rule. But as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. This isn't a new problem. As a matter of fact, our text tonight makes this perfectly clear. The most treacherous of betrayals that we saw last week actually led to the most heinous act of injustice that we'll see this week, which in turn led to the most barbaric and wicked atrocity ever perpetrated against an individual that we'll see next week. And that's not hyperbole, just getting that out there. Our outline tonight looks like this. We're going to look at only two points, but both points have uh, a total of seven subpoints. So for those of you counting, we have the same number of points tonight as we had last week. We get Jesus and how he was found guilty even though he was innocent. And we're basically going to just walk through the story together, and I'm not going to pause, and, and I know some of you like it when I mention each of the points of, you know, those sub-points as we work forward. We're just, I'm just going to tell the story, and we're going to hit all those sub-points. 
Jesus before the Sanhedrin, Jesus before Pilate, Jesus before Herod, Jesus before uh, the people. Uh, And then the second point, we're going to see Jesus was innocent on behalf of or for the guilty. And we're going to look at both Jesus before the throne and us before the throne. All right. Uh, So let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Uh, Father, by your Spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your word? And would you grant us all the spiritual eyes and ears that we need to appraise and apprehend our Savior and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us, but then as always, would you come along and then encourage us and refresh us and comfort us? Um, uh, Always. I am always unfit for this task to which you've called me, so I pray and ask for your grace and for your spirit to fill me that I might do something good for you and your church. Would you grant me fluency and fervency and, and again, grace? Um, And we ask these things for the sake of Christ and his church. Amen. Well, before we jump in, we need to remind ourselves of of what's going on. We're gonna, we need to remind ourselves of the context. And I've said several times as we've been going um, over the last several weeks that we are in the midst of seeing a predetermined sovereign plan of God unfold. Um, and the goal of that predetermined sovereign plan is Jesus' death. And we've said over the course of these last several weeks that there are two wills being imposed here. There are two forces at work. But both of those forces, both of those wills have the same goal. They're working toward the same goal. Again, that is Jesus' death. And Satan used sinful men for Christ's destruction. And God is using sinful men for our redemption. And so the passage is last week this week and next week are really all a part of the climactic battle that actually began back in Genesis chapter 3. When God told the serpent he was going to put enmity between him and Eve and between his offspring and her offspring and that her offspring would bruise his head and he would bruise her offspring's heel. This war has, has been being waged throughout redemptive history. And this is the point, we are now at the point where that, right, that war is going to be won and God was actually using Satan to bring about his plan and that plan of redemption was actually going to include Satan's own demise. And as we watch these things unfold tonight, we're going to experience, I think, we're going to experience somewhat of an internal conflict. And that's because as we walk through the story, we're going to, as we walk through it, we're going to want it to end differently than it ends. As we see these things unfold, we're going to want Jesus to be released because He's obviously innocent. We're going to we're going to want those who oppose him to actually see and realize the, the awful irony, the bitter irony that's transpiring before them and before us. To, and we're going to want him to be vindicated. We're going to want him to be delivered from the un, injustice that he's experiencing. 
because it's not what he deserves. And at the same time, we're going to be confronted with the fact that despite his innocence and despite the freedom that he deserves, we should really want things to play out the way they play out. We should really want for him to be wrongly convicted and condemned and crucified because our redemption is possible only if it ends that way. So you get, do you understand the internal conflict, the back and forth that we're going to be experiencing? And I want you to hang on to that because I'm going to come back to it in the end. So let's jump into our story and look first at Jesus before the soldiers, all right? Uh, We know from the other Gospels that Jesus, uh, on the evening of his arrest, Jesus was taken to the home of Annas, who was a former high priest, and then he was taken to to the home of Caiaphas, who was the current high priest. And during those meetings, there were informal charges basically filed, um, charges of blasphemy. And, but because the law did not allow for a trial to take place at night, they were having to wait right, for, for those things to be formalized. And so while they're waiting to take him to that meeting of the 70-member Sanhedrin, in verses 63 to 65, we're told that that those who were holding him in custody, the soldiers that were there, decided to have this nauseating fun at his expense. The games they played were, were nothing short of vitriolic abuse that was physical, mental, and emotional in nature. His hands were likely tied, and as he stood there defenseless, They mocked him, they beat him, they spat upon him, they even blindfolded him, and then joked and said things like prophesy him. As they sucker punched him, they told him to prophesy and to tell tell them who it was that had hit him. And if that wasn't bad enough, they began to, to contemptuously revile and slander him. In the end, they were blaspheming him. And what's, again, we we want them to see this irony because they're actually committing the sin that they are saying that he is guilty of, of which he is guilty. And And those perpetuating this grotesque brutality apart from repentance would give an account. They're ultimately going to give an account for the things that they're doing. Because even though he doesn't answer them in the midst of this game, even though he doesn't tell them who's punching him, he knows. And they're going to pay. Their display of... Their display is just nothing... Again, nothing short of utter depravity and evil. It can't be understated at all, the things that they're doing. Well, in verse 56, Luke says, when day came, the assembly of the elders of the the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And when they arrived, 
they began their inquisition. They didn't waste any time to begin. The question was clear and it revealed their plan. Jesus, we've been following you for some time. We've been listening to you. We've heard you talk to others. We've even heard you teach ourselves. We've observed your miracles. We've even had conversations with you. But now we just want to get straight to the point. We're going to be as straightforward as we possibly can. If you are the Christ, if you're the Messiah, will you please tell us? Right? Let's just get this over with. It was a question that it was intended to establish a political basis for charges that Rome would consider valid so that, so that his elimination could be justified. Right? Because the Jews aren't allowed. They're in subjection to Rome, so they can't put him to death. It's not within their power. But Jesus doesn't play the game. He doesn't answer their question, he, and he actually turns the tables on them. Notice what he says, you know, I, I'm not going to answer you because your mind's already made up. There's no reason to play this game. You've, you've seen and heard everything you need to believe. There's nothing more that can be added. So anything I say is not going to make a difference. So why say it? It's not going to change your opinion. So why should I answer? And he says, you know, and, and by the way, even if I were to ask you what you thought, if I said, hey, do you think I'm the Messiah? You would do the same thing that you did when I asked you about John. You're not going to answer me either. And with that simple response, with Without them even realizing it, he flips the script, and he puts himself in the position of judge, and he puts his accusers in the position of those being judged and those on trial. You see, what they believed, or what, what he believed about himself was irrelevant. What was important at that time was what they believed about him, and they didn't even realize it. And they obviously didn't believe he was the Messiah, and of course that would have eternal consequences. But he didn't stop there. He may not have answered their question directly regarding the Messiah, but he did indirectly answer in terms of who he was. Right? In verse 69 he said, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And this Son of Man reference has been made several times throughout this gospel. Uh, one commentator said it was just his, his most famous title for himself. And it's taken from Daniel chapter 7, and it's a title that J Jesus again claimed on several different occasions as he was going about his ministry, and it refers to both his humanity and his divinity. It was a title that described him being God incarnate. And he uses it here to make a claim that very soon he was going to take his rightful place at the right hand of God, which was a way of speaking of his power and his authority that he would possess as ruler and judge. 
In Daniel's words, from Daniel 7, he had been given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And again, those men sitting in judgment of him, for them, there would come a day very soon when he would be sitting in judgment of them. They're judging him right now, but it's not always going to be that way. And unlike their judgment, his judgment was going to be fair and impartial because it was going to be just. And this reference isn't lost on them. It wasn't lost on them at all. They knew the scriptures. As a matter of fact, when he makes this statement, I imagine their eyes widening and they begin to give looks to one another down the line and around this. They're in this semicircle, right? The 70 of them as he stands in front of them and they begin to look side to side at one another and maybe even a few slightly, you know, a few slight smiles begin to form and they may, may even have begun leaning over to one another and saying, did, did, did he just say what I think he said? And so they clarify. Are you saying you're the son of God then? Is that what you're saying? To which he answered, you know, you and I would probably define that differently. You think one thing about the son of God I believe something different, but I can't deny it. Um, So I'm not going to argue with you. And the room erupts. We've got him. He's done it. We've heard it with our own lips. We've heard it with our own ears. He's implicated himself. He's incriminated himself. He's claiming to be God. He's blasphemed. He must die. They're giddy with excitement because he's done himself in. Well, as I mentioned when we began, the Jews were in subjection to Rome, so they can't carry out the judgment, right? They can't can't, um, crucify him. They can't eliminate him. It had to be done for them. So in verse 1 of chapter 23, it says that the whole company then arose and took him to Pilate. Pilate was the governor. Um, He was the governor over Judea, and therefore he was the one who uh, was to be appealed to in order for the judgment to be carried out. um, But the Romans, however, they could care less about the charge of blasphemy. It was, just, it was kind of outside their purview. It, did, it didn't matter to them what kind of happened within their, the, the Jewish circles, uh, religiously speaking. Uh, but what they did care about was rebellion. And so what the Sanhedrin does, or what they do, you'll notice they don't come before Pilate with that charge of blasphemy that they have charged him with. They, they come up with these, these charges of insurrection that are that are either completely false or only partly true. For example, in verse 2, they accuse him of misleading and forbidding people to give, uh, he, they accuse him of misleading and forbidding people to give tribute to Caesar. And, and we all know that that's just an out and out lie because back in chapter 20, what did he say? Pay your taxes to Caesar. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. 
And then in verse 2, they also accuse him of claiming to be a king. And again, what they, you know, how they defined king and how he defined king was a little different. But it, it is partly true because he is a king. But he wasn't the type of king that was going to be a threat to Caesar or to Pilate. Because he didn't come to overthrow Rome politically or mili- uh, militarily. And then in verse 3... When Pilate asked him if he was a king, he gave a similar answer as he gave to the Sanhedrin back in verse 70, and he didn't deny it, but we know that from John, that when Pilate asked him, are you a king, he says, yeah, but my kingdom's not of this world. And Pilate says, okay, and believes him. And then in verse 5, they accuse him of creating this nationwide uprising by stirring everyone up because of his teaching, and again, this is just partly true because, right, he was upsetting the status quo. The leaders were uh, tied up in knots, right? They were losing their influence. People were excited. Crowds were gathering. Crowds were following. So, okay, there's some truth to it, but they weren't gathering and they weren't excited because they were going to be involved in some sort of insurrection. They weren't They weren't doing what the Sanhedrin, he wasn't doing what the Sanhedrin was accusing him of doing. And and Pilate wasn't dumb. He wouldn't have been in his position if if he had been. And so he understands that. And after questioning Jesus, he comes to the conclusion, he's not guilty. He hasn't done anything. He hasn't done anything that you've said. He's he's definitely not worthy of death. And he repeats this three times in verse 4, verse 14, and verse 22. He doesn't come to any other conclusion despite what they do, but the more he professes Christ's innocence, the more they double down. They just continue. They're they're, they're not going to take no for an answer. And in the course of this, of course, in in, in the back and forth, uh, Pilate realizes that he's from, Jesus is from Galilee, and so he says, ah, Herod's in town. I'm going to send him to Herod. Herod was the tetra- tetrarch over uh, Galilee. He was in town for the Passover. Um, this is going to not only relieve Pilate of the headache, but it's also going to give them an opportunity to mend fences, things that happened in the past. And he was going to show that he trusted Herod to deal with his responsibility of those people within his jurisdiction, right? And to Pilate's relief, in verse 8, when Herod says, or, or when Herod um, saw Jesus, Herod, he sa- it says he was very glad. He was glad because he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. In other words, Herod's excited because he's heard Jesus has been performing these miracles and he's wanting Jesus to perform for him. He's wanting him to come to his dinner party and put on a show like he's in a circus. And in verses 9 to 11... Luke says everything played out at Herod's just like it did at Pilate's, right? The Sanhedrin are vehemently presenting their uh, accusations. Herod's asking Christ about those things. Christ isn't answering. So Christ not only doesn't answer, he doesn't perform. 
And Herod doesn't like that. Herod gets angry, and so he and his soldiers begin to treat him with contempt and to mock him. They even put this royal garb on him, begin to laugh. And their point is basically that the accusations are ridiculous, right? This whole thing is a joke because they're looking at him and the way they've been treating him and the way they've dressed him, they're saying this whole thing's a joke because he's a joke, And you think he's going to be someone that leads in an insurrection? Herod was not the least bit concerned. So he sent him back to Pilate. And when Jesus returns, Pilate calls the Sanhedrin together. He calls all the people together. And he's he's a people pleaser, so he's going to attempt to appease them all. He comes up with this idea, this alternative that he hopes going to suffice. And in verse 36, that's not right. He's 16. He said he would punish and release him. He's going to have him beaten, not like he's actually going to experience prior to the crucifixion, but he's going to be beaten to the point where blood is drawn just a little bit. And then he's going to be released. But again, the Jews are not going to accept anything less than death. So they begin chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And it just begins to go throughout the crowd. They're demanding, they begin to demand for an exchange. They come up with their own plan. Look, you, we'll give you, we'll give you Jesus. And we'll take Barabbas. Basically what they're saying is, you take who's innocent in exchange for who's guilty. And the, again, the irony, because Barabbas was in prison for the exact charge that they're bringing against Jesus. So they're asking for someone to be released who had actually been involved in an insurrection, and they're falsely accusing Jesus of an insurrection and wanting him killed. Barabbas, Barabbas was guilty and on death row. And they would rather have him and see an innocent man condemned and crucified. And even after the third attempt to convince the crowd of Jesus' innocence and his second attempt to come up with you know, the, the whole punish and release thing, the crowd just grows louder and more agitated. They continue to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And then the most chilling words... Luke writes her in verses 23, 24, and 25. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released Barabbas. And he delivered Jesus over to their will. So he was found guilty, though he was innocent. And over the course of less than 24 hours, prophecy was fulfilled. Listen to Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. 
He was oppressed. And he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And as I've referred for several weeks now, uh, referred to for several weeks now, we, we know Peter's words in Acts 2, right? Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. And killed by the hands of lawless men. You crucified him. You turned him over to the, uh, to the Romans. And the Romans carried out what you wanted to have done. He was found guilty, though he was innocent. And here's the good news. Literally. He was also innocent for or on behalf of the guilty. The innocent was, the innocent one was shackled and suffered set free. The innocent took the place and suffered the place of and suffered the consequences the guilty deserved. The innocent died while the guilty lived. It's the gospel, is it not? I'm not saying Barabbas repented. We have no idea what happened to Barabbas, right? But I'm not saying that he repented. I'm not saying that he believed Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. But the idea of substitutionary atonement in which a spotless, a spotless, blemishless sacrifice is offered in the place of sinful man is obviously pictured here. It's Luke's intent. And that is the gospel that must be embraced by faith. But we need to go back for just a minute to verse, six, uh, verse 69. Remember, Jesus said this, But from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So right now, because Christ has been crucified and Christ has ascended, He is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. In that position, he is sitting in judgment over the nations, as he said he would be. But I want to remind you of something that I was reminded of this week. And I want you to turn to Acts chapter 7. It's just a few pages to the right. Acts chapter 7, and I want you to find verse 54. And the context is that Stephen has just finished preaching. Stephen, who's about to die. And in verses 54 to 56, Luke writes this. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, those that were listening to Stephen. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, he tells them, behold... I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. 
And the question is, why? Why is he standing? Right? He's just said he would be seated. Even the writer of Hebrews says that once he had made purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father, the majesty on high. So we ask, why is he standing? And the truth is, he does sit in judgment over the nations. Listen to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Sounds like Pilate and Herod, does it not? And they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. He will judge those who, despite the evidence, do not trust Him, the Lord Jesus, as their Savior. Those who do not bend their knee and confess Him as Lord or pledge allegiance to Him as King. It's going to happen. And the judgment is going to be severe, but it will be just. But the end of Psalm in him says this, blessed are those who take refuge in him. Why? Because for those who take refuge in him, those who do trust Him as their Savior, those who do submit themselves and confess Him to be Lord and who, who do bend a knee and do acknowledge who He is and pledge allegiance to Him, He does not sit in judgment over them. He stands as their defense attorney, as their advocate before the Father, pleading His work and His blood his merits on their behalf, the innocent for the guilty. He stands claiming them as his own. He's mine. She's mine. They're mine. John puts it this way. He said, if those who trust Christ sin, they have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, He is the propitiation of their sins. This is why we just sang the song that we did as the hymn of preparation. Before the throne of God above, 
I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair, see him and tells me of the, of the guilt within, upward I look, and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me, the innocent for the guilty. So in the words of David Strain, you see the options before you. Jesus Christ tonight is either seated as your judge or He stands in your defense. He either presses the righteous suit and legal case of God against you in the heavenly courtroom or He pleads His blood and righteousness in your defense. And so the question, the questions tonight are who do you say He is? Who do you believe Him to be? Do you believe Him to be Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, Son of God, Son of man, the Messiah, Savior of sinners. And then coming right out of the text, if you do not believe that, what further testimony do you need? Throughout this study of of the gospel, over and over And and specifically in the text tonight, we have seen and heard Jesus acknowledge that He is the Son of Man, that He is the Son of God, that that He is the Messiah. We've seen His miracles performed that both testify and attest to who He is and what He's done. We know that He came to in his ministry of proclamation and presence for the sole purpose of seeking and saving the lost. Again, as the one and only Savior of sinners. And he, at this very moment, is seated at the right hand of the power of God. And he is going to come, as we're going to confess in just a minute, he is going to come again to judge the living and the dead. And so tonight, if you're not a believer in Christ, if you're not a Christian you need to be wise and be warned in the language from Psalm 2. Call on the name of the Lord while there's still time. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. For if not, you will be judged and you're going to be found wanting. There's no in between. Now, you remember as we began, I, I said that we see this story, we hear this story, and we, we feel the tension. We want him absolved. We want it to end different, to be released, because he's obvious. We want there to be a, a just answer. We want 
him to be released because he's obviously innocent and we want those who opposed him, we want them to, to be awakened to their irony and to, and to turn around and do something different. We, we want him to be vindicated because it's what he, what he deserved. He didn't deserve the mocking. He didn't deserve the ridicule. He didn't, dis- he didn't deserve to be abused or spit on or, or scourged. He deserved and deserves to be respected, admired, praised, adored, and worshipped. And yet again, we're, we're confronted with that, that fact that despite his innocence and freedom, we're really, we really must be glad it played out the way it did. Because our redemption was at stake. Because the reality is, apart from Him, there is no difference between us and the Sanhedrin, us and Pilate, us and Herod, us and the crowd. We're people who believe we have the right and justly deserve to sit in judgment of God and sit in judgment of His Word. We're people who are people pleasers and we buckle under the pressure that people put on us and and the demands of others, and we seek to justify ourselves. We're, we're people who are hedonist pleasure seekers, and we want Jesus to perform for us. And when He doesn't perform for us, we turn our backs on Him. We're people who, as we all, uh, also always, or always often sing, we, we are people who hear our mocking vo- voices calling out among the scoffers. Right apart from Him, we justly deserve to die for our sin. But thanks be to God that we've been set free because He was delivered over for our sakes. He who was innocent and knew no sin became sin so that we would become the righteousness of God. He was innocent for us. Our redemption was secured through a perfect, spotless sacrifice that paid our debt in full. He was also innocent for us in that His sinlessness and His record of perfect righteousness has been imputed to us so that we are not only blameless but considered holy before Him. And brothers and sisters, though His once-for-all work is finished... Because our debt has been paid, continues His work as our advocate. You can be confident if your faith and trust is in Him that when you sin, He pleads for you on your behalf. He pleads His merit and His blood on your behalf before the throne of grace that enables you and I to boldly approach the throne of grace. When Satan tempts you and tempts me to despair and and attempts to heap on the guilt and reminds us of the guilt of our sin, Christ stands before the throne of grace on our behalf and says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in me. And he's in me. 
and she's in me, and they're in me. Beloved, look up and see him there. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive this word with faith and love? Enable us to lay it up on our hearts and practice it in our lives. Bless those who have heard your word preached, and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness for the sake of Christ and his church. I pray these things. Amen.